We're looking at, uh, you know, rebuilding a nation by rebuilding a city. And today I want to look at when rebuilding becomes revival. When rebuilding becomes revival. And Lindsay took us through uh, chapter 8 last week, and I want to pick up just on the last verse in chapter 8 because it, it helps uh, set, a, set the scene as we go into chapter 9. So remember, they had been having this great festival, and it was called the Feast of Tabernacles. They were in the seventh month of the year. Um, it's a busy month in Israel's calendar. It also included, before the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Day of Atonement, when they made that massive, you know, once-a-year decisive offering in which they made themselves think about, as it were, God atoning for their sin. And so they had to think about their sin. They had to think about God's action in forgiving them. And so they were working through this process. Um, and then they would have, as they're reading the law, so they read the law, they would have done the Day of Atonement. There's no ways they wouldn't have done that. The temple was up, the altar was in place, and everything like that. Um, but what we learned and Lindsay showed us is that they then went into the Feast of Tabernacles, which the people hadn't really been doing. And so then they, they just went the whole nine yards. And for eight days, they built these booths on the roofs and in the streets of Jerusalem, and it was like a giant street party for church as people were just out there doing this thing. And so we read day after day, from the first day to the last, meaning of the festival of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now notice this, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seventh days. On the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. So there was obviously an assembly as Ezra read the book of the law of God. He wasn't sitting in a back room somewhere reading the, reading the law of God. Every single day, the people were engaging with God's word while this outdoor festival was going on. That is part of the Jewish New Year. And on the 24th day of the same month, now, uh, tabernacles always started on the 15th of the month. If it goes eight days, you're on the 22nd of the month. And so people had the 23rd to go home. They'd been meeting every day for eight days. And before that, a few days before that, they'd done the Day of Atonement. So they've been in Jerusalem for like more than, you know, two weeks now. And it's time to go home. But something won't let them go home. And so they have a day to pack up and head home. And nobody leaves. Nobody leaves. And so on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together. They've been having a giant party. They have been eating outdoor. They've been brying every night. There's been sacrifices. And, of course, the sacrifices, they didn't, it wasn't a holocaust. They didn't burn the whole thing. They gave bits, the choice bits to God. But you ate your sacrifices. It was a fellowship. It was communion. And so, I mean, you know, for eight days they've had this festival. And this joy of the Lord is your strength. So you've got to get the picture. And now we're done. We've done atonement. We've done this. We can go home. And they gathered together. Nobody left. Something was happening in their hearts. And they had a day off and they said, I'm not ready. I'm not done. God's not done. We're not finished. 
But they moved from feasting to fasting, wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. And those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood in their place and confessed their sins and the sins of their forefathers. And they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of their God for a quarter of a day. So we just got a bit of a way to go. Um, And then spent another quarter of the day confessing and worshipping the Lord their God. And standing on the stairs of the Levites were Joshua, Barney, Kadmiel, and a whole bunch of other guys. And then there were other guys who were acting as relays, the Levites. And there they were, and they stood up, and with a loud voice they said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. And something of their prayer, which you can see is deeply schooled in the story of Israel and rooted in the words that they were reading. Now, we haven't got time for the whole prayer, but blessed be your glorious name. We've just been singing that. May it be exalted above all blessing, all praise. You alone are God. Be still know he is God. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, all their starry hosts, the all the earth, all that is in it, the seas, all that is in them. Sounds like a psalm. You give life to everything. The multitudes of heaven worship you. Notice this, they're getting a view of the afterlife and the angelic and the saints in the presence of God. You are the Lord God. And now they get a view from that heavenly perspective of the God who's acted in history. And so they begin to hear about Abraham and how he was brought from being a moon-worshipping Chaldean to like finding Yahweh and becoming, uh, you know, just the most uh, learning monotheism. And, and he... The Lord, it says, you found his heart faithful to you. You know, Abraham rediscovered monotheism. That's his greatest role in the Bible. And he discovered this, that if if there's one God, he gets everything, even my son. And if there's one God, everything I need, I'll get from him. And God says to him, I'm your shield, your very great reward. And so out of this comes the story of Israel that we haven't got time to go through. But if we jump to verse 29... Then they, they realize out of the story that again and again, although God has promised a king, Israel and their kings have been so deeply imperfect that the promise of the land and the promise of the kingdom has fallen short again and again and again. And we read this in verse 29. You warned them in order to turn them back. I mean, you literally wanted them to come home to your law, but they became arrogant, disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances of which you had said the person who obeys them will come alive through them. But stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, refused to listen. For many years, you were so patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through the prophets. Yet they paid no attention, so you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and a merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, and they landed in their situation. The great God, the mighty, the awesome, who keeps his covenant of love. Do not let all this hardship that they've described because of their own sin be a trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come on us and our kings and our leaders and our priests and our prophets on our ancestors and all your people from the days of the king of Assyria till today. He's talking about the exile now. 
in all that has happened to us. Remember this Nehemiah narrative. You, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully. He refuses to assign evil to God. While we acted very evilly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, our ancestors did not follow your way. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep. And even while they were in their kingdom, notice this idea, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from evil ways. But now see, we are slaves. What our ancestors did has led us into a place of bondage. It's quite a principle that we are slaves in the very land you gave our ancestors. It's one thing to be a slave in Assyria. It's one thing to be a slave in Babylon. It's one thing to be a slave in Persia. But oh, to be a slave in the land of promise. The exile's not over. The exile, in a sense, has come home. Theologically, this is very important. Because of our sins... The abundant harvest goes to the kings you've placed over us. The king who is over you receives the harvest of your life. They rule over our bodies and our cattle and they do as they please. And we are in great distress. In view of this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing so that us, our leaders, our Levites and our priests, because they didn't have a king, And we're affixing our seals to it. And the story goes on of who put their seals to it and then what they did. So here we go. Rebuilding becomes revival. We're in a place where rebuilding becomes revival. Now, I have got about five pages of rough notes, which I normally have one. So three hours. No, we're not going to go there. I have just left out so much. So why do I say that? Because quite simply, I know there's a lot of gold that we won't mine in the text. But I, I, I just am going to jump in and, and give you, as it were, some of the headlines. Number one, the book of Nehemiah is a story of massive contrasts. You know, the book starts in exile and ends in the land where they belong. The book starts in dispossession and ends with restoration. The book starts with the walls broken and ends with the walls rebuilt. The book starts with the gates burnt and ends with the gates fitted and in place. The book starts with fasting and ends with feasting. The book starts with a man, one man, broken in grief. Before God, confessing sins, praying for courage and favor to put right the wrongs. The book ends with a nation gathered before God, broken in grief, on their knees confessing their sins. And not just praying to put wrongs right, but as you read, they're actually putting wrongs right. It's an amazing book. As I read this, I said to a couple of people this week, I'm so weary of just preaching the text. And next week we come and get our next reading and just move on by. You know, these people, they couldn't leave. They stayed, even though they had done everything that was required. They couldn't let go and just go home. Too much was going on inside for them. 
And I've realized part of the reason I'm struggling is I don't just want to preach and leave. I want to live this story. I want to see this happen. I want to live this text and not just read it. I want to see a city and a nation rebuilt with all my heart and I fall to my knees and I want to break any agreements I've made, whether I was aware of them or completely oblivious to them and whether they're generational or personal, whatever it is, I want that to end. And I want to break agreements with brokenness and injustice and lost inheritance and just plain sin. And you can know when those stirrings grab a hold of your heart that renewal and revival is on its way. The second thing, and notice this, that the rebuilding begets revival. We, we mistakenly assume that revival always comes first, that we have this powerful God encounter that, uh, you know, that, that we're going to shout for joy or weep in brokenness or, you know, at some point in the Ezra story, there were so many people shouting different things that nobody even knew who was crying and who was laughing. It was just chaos. Where was my point? Uh, <laughs> We assume that kind of thing needs to come first and, and, and then, you know, society will change and be rebuilt and then the poor can be cared for and everything like that. What's really interesting is we believe that revival will fix everything, but it's not so in this story. It's not so in this story. It's the other way around. They first do the practical work of fixing things. And if you think of it in terms of, you know, Old Testament religious practice, you know, you had to build an offer, altar and put the offering on it. You had to put everything from your side there and then God would send the fire. And we often think, God, send the fire and then we will fix things. Now, I know that when God sends the fire, it fixes things. Make no mistake. But we mistakenly assume that we can't do anything until we have seen undeniable emotional, you know, scenes of laughter and tears and breakthrough and preaching for hours and whatever it is. And, and we don't realize that actually in this story and in many other places actually in Scripture, the rebuilding happened, the readiness happened before the revival. And that rebuilding can take many forms, including the things we've seen in this book in terms of people you know, coming together, in terms of private prayer and corporate prayer, etc. It's simply not true that revival starts a spiritual renewal, which then becomes transformative. Sometimes God responds. And in Isaiah 58, it actually is very clear that sometimes God says, I won't give you renewal until you fix things. And so in Isaiah 58 verse 6 where, where people are fasting and crying out to God and they seem eager to know God, he says this, is this not the fasting I've chosen to loosen the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, provide the wanderer with shelter when you see the naked, give them clothes, don't turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn. Yes, the revival coming. Then your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you. And then the glory of the Lord is going to back you up all the way and be your rear God. Then you call and the Lord will answer. Then you will cry for help. You'll say, here I am. 
So if you do away with oppression, the voice of oppression, the appointing finger with malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry, satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night become like the noonday. It's interesting that as they do this work, something shifts that lasts for generations. I haven't got time to map it in the meta-narrative of world history. But this is such a defining point. If you think of the things that they sorted out, even you know, 400 years later when Jesus came, whatever else they were getting wrong, they were getting this revival stuff right. They were observing the Sabbath meticulously. They were reading the law and memorizing it meticulously. They were, they were saying their prayers. Now, they, they may have got a bunch of other stuff wrong, but the actual good stuff that came out of this was still with them. The other thing is revival is time-intensive. Time in God's word, time in worship, time in prayer, time in meeting together, time in fasting, time in feasting, time in celebrating, time in and with the Lord. As I explained, they, hadn't, they didn't go home even after eight days of listening to sermons every day. They didn't go home after having done the Day of Atonement. Now, let me just say this. Explore. Our culture is deeply influenced by a worldview of efficiency. Our heroes are the clever or lucky people who get maximum returns for minimum input. Can I get an Amen. We, we are so deeply schooled in that. Like, we, we do not question it. Like, if someone gets maximum returns for minimum input, we think that's amazing. So this has affected our view of God and church, this efficiency thing. And we're conditioned by our culture to want the best church we can have for the least inputs. And, and this shows in a hundred different ways. We want the best church we can have for the least inputs. The problem is that it's a short step from wanting the best church with the least inputs to wanting church with minimum effort and with no time. That actually takes to build and rebuild and get things going. As I read this, I could not but see in the text and in the whole story how time-intensive the rebuilding had been, if you think back through the book, and how time-intensive even this process, and how when, when, as it were, they'd fulfilled the letter of the law, they still knew that the heart purpose of the law had not yet been finished. Maybe they were thinking of Nehemiah, I mean, Jeremiah's words, I will give you a heart of flesh. I'll take away the heart of stone. And they're realizing they're wanting more from God. I was listening to a church leader describe an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and a clear revival in a particular context. And, and one of the things he said, which was a complete side effect that he did not see coming, was that people's grooming and even personal hygiene took a distinct knock. Because... They were just so focused on what they wanted that, like, you know, you just didn't have time to go and do all the usual stuff. Being present, this is what he said, mattered so much more than what you looked like. 
People just didn't want to miss out. Now, I thought the text was very wise at this occasion because people just put on sackcloth and ashes and then nobody cared. You know, that was your grooming. That was your personal hygiene. That's what you did because you were, you were. Notice, listen, it wasn't all about being miserable. This was a deliberate choice. But they also realized they needed some kind of concrete, like, thing to mark what God was doing for them. So, yeah, this revival, this renewal is time-intensive. Now, listen, I'm, no one wants to waste the gift of life and time. So efficiency is a good thing, but it's not a supreme thing. And that's because of the fourth point. The things they gave their time to, all their actions, whether it was the word, whether it was prayer, whether it was worship, whether it was confession, whether it was sacrifices, whether it was festivals, was all centered on God. And you're never wasting time when you're centered on God. It is time-intensive but not time-wasted because they're using their time on what matters most. Notice that it's a revival that is both personal and corporate. It's emotional and intellectual. I mean, they weep, they laugh, they, you know, whatever. It's, uh, and they like processing God's word in enormous chunks. So it's, 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 it's mind and heart. It's fasting and feasting. It's, it's so broad in its impact, but it's all centered on God. It's all centered on, on the Lord himself and what he was doing for them. And so these guys, they couldn't get enough of their word. And I mean, there's Ezra, this hidden hero. He, Twelve years ago, he'd almost been pushed to the side by the powers and obstructiveness that had come from Sanballat and Tobiah and, and, and letters to the king. And, and the thing had seemingly been derailed and halted. But Ezra had kept, he, he had stayed faithful, I bet you, in his personal life. He had stayed in the word. He had stayed in prayer. And when Nehemiah came and helped with the things that Ezra wasn't good at and Ezra didn't have the authority to do, their giftings came together. And the one was the rebuilder and the other was the anointed teacher. And when those two came together, centered on God, you saw the most amazing breakthrough. And the people couldn't get enough of God's word when 12 years before they just stopped listening. And their worship and prayer gets formed by the story of God. You have to read the chapter for that. And they're willing, as, I, as we've said, to feast and fast and live in booths. And they don't stop until the business is done. And in fact, even when it's time to stop, they're saying, I'm not done. And literally the whole place just show up and go, more please. Number five, they move to collective obedience. Out of this spiritual awakening comes a clear and binding agreement that they share as a community. Now, again, this is different to how we think. We think that our religion is very personal. Now, of course, it should be personal. But we, we just insert the word private for personal. And we think it's got nothing to do with anybody else, what we decide, how we worship, how we pray, whatever. And we get really offended when people think differently. It just shows that we're very far from a biblical worldview. We've got work to do. And, and, and for them, this was the most natural thing to look for people in the corporate environment, in the collective, in the shared space. And so as they go into the shared space, they realize, 
I've got unfinished business, but we've got unfinished business. We want to create a new culture. Now, the interesting thing is they know they ruled by a foreign king, and they're not trying to you know, start a protest and send something to the king and say, let us keep the Sabbath. They just start keeping the Sabbath. They don't send a thing and say, hey, we, you know, we messed up, and our wives are this, and some of them are foreigners, etc., etc. They just start dealing with the issues that they have authority over. You'll be amazed. Remember, if you focus on your circle of influence rather than worry about your circle of concern, you will be amazed at what God starts to do through what you actually have influence over. And one of the things you have influence over is who you choose to do community with who you choose to stand in agreement with, who you choose to make a binding agreement and a covenant. This is what we want to see. And guys, I don't know of a better group that I have in my life right now than the people who are in front of me. I want to be in covenant with you, making binding agreements and saying, let's see our city rebuild. Let's see our nation change. Let's see and seek God together until we see some of those changes. And let's not wait for them. Let's not wait for the king or the president or anyone else. Let's set up what is needed. And so they... (laughs) They recognize they've compromised in a whole bunch of key stuff, and they start putting it right. And they had to look at the alliances that were all the way right back to their own bedrooms, this mixed marriage thing. By the way, that was not racial. That was a faith issue. It's actually clear in the text. I haven't got time. But the problem was that their hearts were turning away from God because of the marriages they made. You know, Moses had a foreign wife. No one condemned him. Um, apart from Aaron and um, Miriam, and they got into trouble a bit. They got into trouble for speaking against a foreign wife. Problem is not having someone from another nation. Problem is not diversity. Joshua had a foreign wife. Rahab was very much part of the city of Jericho and didn't, hadn't lived in Egypt with Israel for a day of her life. Boaz had a foreign wife. But if they will say, your God will be my God, like Ruth... Your people will be my people. There's no problem. The problem was not the mixed marriages. The problem was the compromise of faith. And then lastly, believe it or not, revival is not a cure-all. They experienced genuine revival. It's important to see this. But the prayer ends with a heartache cry. Our task is not finished because our king has not yet come. We do what we do and we obey as we obey and we do everything we need to do and we see genuine revival. But remember this, you are going to need renewal and revival all every single day until your king comes. You never get a dust off your hands. We are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers. Yet because of our sins, it goes to the kings who are over us. Now, here's a couple of things. You could tell me. Just make sure that the king who's over you, who's going to get the produce of your life, is Jesus. Isn't Isn't that like just the most obvious thing? And Jesus has come. And, and by the way, in the story of Scripture, which I haven't got time to go into now, this little verse is one of the most decisive theological turning points in the mindset of uh, the Jews. They realize Yahweh needs to send a king 
Because until we have a king, we don't really have the land. They misunderstand that a little bit because God is going to send a king. But he's not going to give them the land. He's going to give them the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. Jesus is going to come. So spoiler alert. Yeah, in the Old Testament, Jesus is coming. There's a king who will receive the produce of your life. And we have the opportunity. Revival is not going to cure all. It's going to do a lot. Renewal is not going to fix everything. We have to live in the tension that we can see amazing amounts right now if we will walk with God. Why do I say this? Don't get discouraged because of what is not yet happening. You can give up on the good things you should be doing because you start getting offended by the things that are not yet happening. Don't let that happen. They were still under a foreign king and they were walking in the fullness and power of renewal. Don't, don't give up on what we can do just because we're not yet seeing everything. And I mean that with capital letters, everything that God can do. Just keep, keep walking in the, re, the revival that rebuilding brings. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can spend this time together. Why, why, why don't you guys stand? Why don't you stand? Lord, we feel the breeze and we sense your spirit with us. We thank you for the acceleration in our hearts as we've read your word. Mm. So we say, come, Holy Spirit. Lord, we want to live the story. We want to live the story. We want our hearts broken. We want our mouths laughing. We want, we want to live all the contradictions and comparisons inside the story. We want the story. We want the story. We want the story of your action to become our story. We want the healing. We want the breakthrough. And we want the king. We want the king. But Lord, we want to do whatever rebuilding you want us to do. Prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare the way for the Lord. He's coming. He's coming. And so make the road straight. Fill up the valleys. Knock down the mountains. Get ready. He's coming. He's coming. So, Lord, we just say thank you. Thank you. And, Lord, I, I pray with all my heart that we would walk in what your word has deposited today. In Jesus' name, amen.